So I want to start today with a, a thought experiment. Imagine, imagine that you do not know anything about what it means to follow Jesus. I know this is tough for most of us because most of us are at least ra- maybe raised in the church or at least been around for a while. But imagine that your, your parents did not bring you to church when you were little. Your grandparents didn't bring you to church when you were little. Imagine that you did not have any religious influence in your life at all. Imagine that you have uh, no frame of reference for what Christianity is all about until a friend invites you to Easter worship, thinking that you might be interested. And this friend is a, is a member here at Christ United Methodist Church, loves being part of this congregation, thinks you might um, like to experience a celebration of the event that started the entire Christian movement. And so imagine that you were in a Christian church for the very first time here in this sanctuary just a few weeks back on that glorious Easter Sunday morning. Uh, What a day (laughs) to be in church for the first time, right? The pews were full. Uh, There were what seemed like several hundred musicians on the chancel, wasn't quite that many, but it felt like it. The music was amazing. There was a a buzz in the air that was joyful and inspired and welcoming. Uh, The preacher, even though he sounded a little funny, suffering succotash, said something that resonated with you, something that, that made you want to know more. In fact, everything was, was wonderful and it seemed important somehow in a way that you had not anticipated. And so the following week, you reach out to take the first step in your spiritual journey. Where would you begin? Where should you begin? If this hypothetical person reached out to me and wanted to start reading the Bible, if they wanted to get uh, a firsthand account of this, of this Jesus thing, I'd, I'd point them to two places to start. If they were brand new to the Christian faith uh, and before getting too deep, they wanted to, to get a sense of who Jesus was and what he was all about, and if they wanted to read it for themselves from the original texts, I'd have two recommendations. Now, uh, I would have them avoid the Old Testament at the beginning. (laughs) There's a lot of weird stuff in there. Um, You have to kind of ease into that. Obviously, it's a good spiritual discipline to to read the entire Bible cover to cover. I highly recommend it. And to engage in ongoing Bible study with other Christians throughout our lives. All of that is important. But as Christians, we read uh, the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, which is to say we, we read the Old Testament through the lens of the incarnation, life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Christ. And so if a, if a brand new follower of Jesus wanted to get started somewhere, uh, the first place that I would point them to would be the Gospel of John, because it's a, it's a brilliantly told summary of the story of Jesus. The Gospel author is very clear that he's not telling us everything, he's just picking some highlights, and he tells us at the end of the Gospel um, that his Gospel is written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. And I think John does uh, an extremely um, excellent, effective job in trying to accomplish that mission. So that's the first thing that I would have people read. The second thing I would recommend that they read once they've oriented themselves to who Jesus was, the second thing I would have them read is the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew's Gospel. It's chapters five through seven. So it's three chapters to get through. 
Uh, it is Jesus' most famous teaching, and to me, it has always been his most challenging teaching. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reinterprets the law of Moses, and he sets these uh, incredibly high expectations for those who want to follow him. And this most famous teaching of Jesus is going to be our subject for our sermon series in May. Throughout our 50th anniversary year, we are highlighting different aspects of our identity here at Christ United Methodist Church. You may remember back in uh, January, we talked about how we are a learning church, and so our word for that month was growth. Um, Then in February, we talked about how we are a church that is rooted in the Bible. It's the source and starting point of our theology. We believe it contains all things necessary for salvation, and so our word in February was Scripture. And then March was the season of Lent. That's a season of spiritual renewal. We talked about how we're a spiritual church, church, and our word was spirit. Makes sense. And then last month, our focus was on our identity as a serving church, and so our word was service. This month, we're talking about uh, how we are a church that engages the issues, that engages with the world, and uh, we do this through a a biblical concept called justice. And when I think about the biblical concept of justice, I think about immediately Micah chapter 6, verse 8. That's one of the most important scriptures in the Old Testament for me. And it's a verse that, that famously reminds us, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God? Acting with, with justice and mercy uh, means following God's will for our lives, seeking a vision for the world that God created. And an important part of the life of faith as disciples of Jesus is doing just that as best we can each day. So this month, we're exploring what what justice looks like uh, through the lens of Jesus' most famous teaching, his most challenging teaching, because the truth is, living according to the will of God very often puts us at odds with the world. And so our new uh, sermon series is called Salty, a series about standing out for the right reasons. And we're going to begin the series near the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes, which are beautiful and are a whole sermon series in and of themselves. We're going to begin just after that in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. So listen, friends, for the Word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the evangelist Matthew. This is uh, Jesus speaking to his disciples, which of course means Jesus speaking to us. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but it's thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So as you read through the three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount, you notice that Jesus repeatedly uses uh, metaphors to illustrate his teaching. He does that throughout all the Gospels, but it's particularly prevalent in 
the Sermon on the Mount. And the two metaphors in our passage for today are specifically about the relationship between disciples, us, and the world. Uh, The second metaphor in our reading, that disciples are the light of the world, is straightforward enough. I think we're expected to reflect the light of God into even the darkest corners of the world. I think that makes sense. I I think we get that. It's the other metaphor in our passage that we're emphasizing in this series. It's one of the most famous metaphors that Jesus used for the Christian life. In fact, it's even become an idiom in English to say someone is salt of the earth is is a compliment. But I actually don't think that its meaning is as obvious as the light of the world. We need some some context if we're going to fully grasp what Jesus is saying here. Uh, Salt was the most commonly used seasoning in the ancient world back when, when access to spices was extremely limited. But it also played an essential role as a preservative in a day when refrigeration was unknown and that meant that uh, salt was actually a necessity for life. It was invaluable not just to enhance flavor but also to preserve health and well-being. And because of its essential function in that way, salt took on religious significance in scripture. Uh, Salt was used in incense for temple worship. All animal sacrifices in the temple had to be seasoned with salt. And in the books of of Numbers and Second Chronicles, salt symbolized the making of a covenant. All of which means that in the context of the biblical world, salt was both, both culturally and theologically essential. For us today, it's still essential. Salt is one of the five basic flavors that we taste and crave. And when making what may be the universal staple of the human diet, bread, salt is a necessary ingredient. If you're a baker, you know this. It's necessary for yeast to to work properly. It's necessary for the structure of the bread. It is obviously necessary for the flavor of the bread. And if we think um, of the essential role that bread plays in Jesus' ministry, we get a sense of how important this metaphor is. Most notably in the miracle of the multiplication of the fish and loaves, and then also in the sacrament of Holy Communion, the sacrament that Jesus himself instituted and that we'll celebrate today as we do every month. Salt is is essential for this fundamental human staple that plays such a key role in our theology. All of which is to say, The metaphor of salt is Jesus' way of telling us that as disciples, we are not called to withdraw from the world. Far from it, in fact. Like salt, God's faithful are essential to the life of the world. We are called to engage with the world, bearing witness to God's will for creation. As Jesus himself says at the end of our passage for today, the world should see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus tells us that our witness can and should change the world. What God desires and what God requires of us is justice and mercy. In a world that's that's all too often short on both, we are called to embody these godly values, which, uh, to add another metaphor to our first sermon of this series, absolutely means that we will often be going against the grain of culture as we bear witness to God's will. In what ways, you might ask? 
how do we go against the grain as followers of Jesus? You might be wondering, and, and back to our thought experiment from earlier, for anyone brand new to the, to the faith journey, it's good to know uh, what we're getting ourselves into as we begin the journey of discipleship. In the coming weeks, we're gonna be exploring what it means to be salty, standing out for the right reasons. We'll be talking about three highlights from the Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot in there. We're gonna highlight three things. So next week, we're gonna read how Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek and love our enemies. I don't, think there's a, I don't think there's a teaching of Jesus that I wrestle with more than that one. And then the week after, uh, he's gonna challenge us to be content with enough in a world that's consumed with always wanting more. And then in the last week of the series, he's gonna challenge us not to judge, lest we be judged. And while we're covering just some highlights of this incredible teaching from our Lord. I hope you'll consider uh, reading and meditating on the Sermon on the Mount throughout May. You may remember that as an entire congregation, we read through the Gospel of Matthew during Lent. Now we're gonna have a chance to take a deep dive on chapters five through seven as Jesus challenges us to be salty. (laughs) As we uh, take seriously God's expectation that we do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God, we should expect the culture to push back. I mean, uh, if we're serious about being the salt of the earth, if we're intentional about living as Christ teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, we know that that's not going to be the easy path. One of the great Christian thinkers of the last century, C.S. Lewis, whose books have uh, inspired and illuminated my own journey, made what I think is an accurate observation. He said, uh, you can't go against the grain of the universe and not expect to get splinters. (laughs) I look forward to spending this month exploring Christ's high expectations on our lives. Amen.